we said Sutta is about the elements and about the khandas and um, therefore very important because the, the aggregate, the khandas are that where our self-illusion arises from so we'll see now we have had the body as earth element let's see what the next one is actually it still goes on about the body now if others attack a person with unwished for undesired and disagreeable contact of fists and sticks or knives one understands thus this body is a thing that contact with fists and sticks and knives takes place but this has been said by the Buddha in his discourse on the simile of the saw and now it's been quoted uh, a sentence out of the uh, another discourse even if bandits savagely severed limb from limb with a two-handled saw he who entertained hate in his heart on that account would not be one who carried out my teaching now this would be worthwhile remembering because we can get angry if somebody just looks at us sideways and the Buddha has taught that even if bandits savagely severed limb from limb with a two-handled saw he who entertained hate in his heart on that account would not be one who carried out my teaching but I think every time when the mind would go into some sort of negative state because somebody said something, did something, looked in this way or that way we might remember that it's um, even if that would happen hate is still not justified I think that would give, give one pause to think. And if one thinks that way, so then tireless energy shall be aroused in me and unremitting mindfulness established. My body shall be tranquil and unexcited and the mind concentrated and unified. And then let contact with fists and sticks and knives take place in this body for this is just how the Buddha's message is put into effect well I dare say that we wouldn't manage with the, when bandits would uh, attack us and would use a saw to sever our limbs but we might remember that the Buddha said that dislike and rejection um, or hate or anger or anything of that sort never has any justification it doesn't matter what it is and since there are this sort of thing with the bandits isn't likely to happen maybe we could use this in on a on a more usual level that we are concerned with that we um, every time we find in ourselves some negativity but we remember if we really want to practice the Buddha's teaching then the first thing to do is to get rid of that 
to establish the body in tranquility and unexcited. Well, that would mean that we're mindful of the body, that we would notice whether the body is tranquil and unexcited, and the mind concentrated and unified. And then, let take place whatever will, the Buddha's teaching can be put into effect. Now, obviously, sometimes a mind which is not uh, fully enlightened will not be able to put the teaching into effect. But the least we can do is try. And lots of people don't even try. And that is the thing which is objectionable. That we don't succeed is not objectionable. That we don't succeed is normal human behavior. Perfectly all right, perfectly natural. But not to try, not to even see that it's absurd to have anger and dislike and uh, all sorts of uh, negative feelings about things or people or happenings and then not even try to realize the nonsense which that entails that is a person who isn't practicing the um, the result that's a different matter that depends upon the length of practice the skillfulness of practice and one's karma now some people have brought with them difficult karma and cannot succeed very quickly but not to try that is um, that is um, not worthwhile meditating when one doesn't try not to get rid of one's negativities it isn't worth meditating one might as well admit to the fact that spiritual life is not exactly what one is after but what is also necessary here is that to remember the connection this has to the form to that which we have already heard yesterday namely that the the body and, and that which is solid in the body is the earth element so what is being attacked there is uh, is an earth element that the earth element is touching earth element which will help one in this kind of uh, physical uh, endeavor to be more at ease about it that one doesn't have so much um, personal ownership at stake the establishment of the body in tranquility and unexcited and the mind of concentration and unification the second one is definitely meditation uh, concentration and unification of mind the first one, body tranquil and unexcited, is mindfulness. Mindfulness of the body. If one doesn't watch, it's very easy to have the body move in an in a non-tranquil manner. And if the body is non is non-tranquil, it helps the mind to also lose peacefulness. It's, they both have 
are intertwined. Although the mind is the master, the body does have an effect on the mind as, as long as one isn't enlightened. As if a body is very painful, the mind reacts to that. So if the body does all sorts of um, excitable and excited movements, obviously the mind is going to be affected by that and vice versa, of course, too, and even more so. If one recollects Buddha Dhamma Sangha and equanimity does not persist with the profitable as its support, then one should arouse a sense of urgency. So at the same time when one is being attacked either physically or mentally and then recollects Buddha Dhamma Sangha and equanimity does not arise, then a sense of urgency is necessary and that one should think it is loss for me, it's no gain for me, it's bad for me, it's not good for me, that when I recollect Buddha Dhamma Sangha and equanimity does not persist in me, with the profitable as its support. Now the profitable are all states of mind which help to remember the Buddha's teaching. The profitable are all wholesome states of mind. It is just another word for wholesome. They are all skillful states of mind. It's, a, it's one Pali word for all of them. It's kusala and it's sometimes translated as profitable, sometimes as wholesome, sometimes as skillful. And all three words tell us the same thing in the English language. And particularly here, the, um, the sutta is about insight. And obviously insight needs to be practiced alongside of calm, so that the calm will have a result, a result and will have a support. So the profitable as a support, which means that our understanding, our insight has to be the support system for us to behave in a manner which actually depicts the Buddha's teaching. Now this behavior in a manner which depicts the Buddha's teaching is here mentioned as equanimity. And that is something that cannot be um, faked and it's something that cannot be um, just um, practiced because one thinks it's right. It only comes from inside. It doesn't have any other support system. So the support system for equanimity is is a profitable, which means that we remember what the Buddha, Buddha taught and practice it under all circumstances. The practice of the Buddha's teaching, at times when the mind is calm and collected, is much easier, of course, than when one gets excited. So it is necessary before somebody attacks one with the fists and the knives or whatever, or with words and with uh, behavior that one practices beforehand because then when it, the attack does come and the attack comes for everybody at one time or another it doesn't have to be sticks and knives I mean it's usually with words 
sometimes it's just uh, just behavior that that practice has taken place beforehand so that when this does happen that the profitable is aroused as a matter of course it's too late then to start practicing and that's why most people get excited and are not tranquil and unexcited so the um, tranquility and the ex- uh, and the unexcitement and the concentration and unification all have a profitable as their support system now the profitable is of course also our mental emotional states but particularly is meant here that we know the teaching so that we can use it but if a person recollects Buddha Dhamma Sangha and equanimity becomes established with what is profitable as support then that person is satisfied and at that point friends much has been done by such a person so the Buddha is praising sorry Sai Buddha Sai Buddha is praising equanimity because it is the um, jewel of emotion and it is one of the seven factors of enlightenment and it is the only emotional state which retains peacefulness there is no other that is the emotional state and as I have said before it must not be confused with indifference and it is not something that we can arouse just by wanting to people try it's always false it's a suppression it doesn't have a good result it appears to be something which it isn't it isn't the real thing the real thing comes from deep down inside the heart where the turbulence of the emotions has been put to rest through what? only through insight through the continual practice of insight it's a continual practice it's not something that we do when we're in a meditation course it's not something that we do when somebody speaks about Dhamma or when we pick up a Dhamma book it is something that we need to practice all the time because it is hard to come by it's not easy it's a hard thing to, to come by equanimity so it has to be done all the time and it usually increases little by little it doesn't increase by leaps and bounds uh, eventually one sees that there has been an an immense change but it's only small steps that we take and that's only correct everybody needs to take small steps because big steps we can't manage but the worst aspect that human beings usually have in not practicing is forgetting and forgetting is lack of mindfulness remembering is mindfulness anyone who can remember easily has mindfulness doesn't necessarily mean that that person has already equanimity but at least can remember if one can't remember that's the worst of it because when we are in situations which aren't very difficult we seem to let go or when things become terrible that's 
when all of a sudden we remember, wasn't there something the Buddha said about equanimity? What was it again? And then we don't know, and we haven't practiced, and of course we can't arouse it. That even-mindedness that comes from the heart is based on the fact of having seen not only the elements, here the elements are mentioned as that which needs to be seen, but what has been seen is the fact that there's nothing, nothing in this world, absolutely nothing, which is worthwhile getting excited about, which includes death. Nothing. There isn't anything, because this world doesn't offer anything, and therefore it can't lose anything. It just is. But that takes the continuation of the practice of impermanence and seeing the dukkha in the world and seeing the dukkha in oneself and recognizing the fact that emotions other than the Brahmaviharas, the divine abodes, the supreme emotions, all emotions are detrimental to everybody's well-being. <coughs> now that is the end of the story here on the earth element. And the earth element is particularly <coughs> um, made reference to here that sticks and knives and fists are earth element hitting the body as earth element. And that's being made reference to that there, when we remember the teaching, when we remember what the Buddha said, then it is possible to retain one's equanimity even under such circumstances. Now comes the water element. What is the water element? The water element can be either in oneself or external. What is it in oneself? Whatever in oneself, belonging to oneself, is water, watery, clung to. That is to say, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, spittle, snot, oil of the joints, urine, or whatever else in oneself, belonging to oneself, is water, watery, and clung to. This is called water element in oneself. Now this um, list of things that are mentioned here are part of the 32 parts of the body. I did read out that list earlier and said, oh, well, they are, they are missing there. They haven't got all 32. And the reason for that was that those that were mentioned earlier were all the earth element uh, uh, parts. There weren't 32 parts. There was just those parts of the body which are earth element solid. And now this part here has all the water element parts, which uh, altogether, if I were to count them, probably would make 31. Yes, presumably they would. So all those things are mentioned, which are usually in that list, and here they are the water element. Now that is, again it is said, whatever in oneself belonging to oneself is, is clung to. Now, obviously, everybody thinks that that stuff belongs to oneself, and we cling to it. We don't cling particularly to phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, but we cling to all of them because we say this is mine. 
this is me now in the language we don't have any choice we've got to talk like that but we don't just talk like that because we have no choice we talk like that because we feel like that if we were to start crying we would say I'm crying and we would feel I'm crying we wouldn't think we are just tears we feel that we are crying and the same with the urine I mean we would feel that that's ours even though it's come out and it's no longer part of us <laughs> so all this this um, illusion that we have about the body the Buddha tries to dispel through the explanation of the elements and the parts of the body now these are two ways of the meditation which I've already explained the parts of the body meditation and of the, uh, also the element meditation <clears throat> if we can see that this is within us and outside and has there's no difference whatsoever water is water and just because it is attached to this body and sometimes it's out there we think it's different but it's all just water water element and no difference at all in fact all of those things with the exception maybe of tears all of them we don't even like to see we don't like to see bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, grease, spittle, snot, oil of the joints, urine. Nobody likes to see any of that. And yet, we all think it's part of us, it's us, it's me. There's a distinct aberration of our mind state. And although, when we finally agree to it, that that isn't us, we still won't get rid of it yet we have to first intellectually agree to it and not try to find a substitution well okay I'm not that then I must be something else and there's this wonderful idea well of course I'm not the body but I'm the soul and there people have this marvelous idea that the soul means the nice part of us so nobody has yet figured out what, what one does with the awful part of oneself the kind that gets angry and the kind that is upset which part of that where the soul of that is going to go the soul appears to be the nice part so that one has an, at least an anchor that that's me the Buddha tried to explain and tried to show people that this anchor is also an operation of the mind it's nothing but an illusion it's an idea these are ideas which cannot be um, construed in fact the facts that he showed were well there's a water element okay now water element in oneself and external are simply water that should be seen with right understanding as it actually is this is not mine this is not I this is not myself when a person sees it thus with right understanding as it actually is a person becomes dispassionate towards the water element and the lust fades for the water and the lust fades out of the mind for the water element 
Lust is that craving and clinging that we have, the craving and the clinging, which makes it ours. The lust is that which keeps us bound to the body and the mind as ourselves because we expect to have from it a gratification. We expect the gratification from this body. Well, we do get it, but it's so short-lived, it's not worth having. And this is a difficult part of it. We do get it, and we get it over and over again. But included in this gratification that we get from this body are also all the aches and pains we get from it. And there's one can say hardly anyone immune from that. In fact, anyone who gets old is certainly not immune from that, but most young people are having as much aches and pains as old people, and uh, sometimes worse. So, to try and own this conglomeration of bits and pieces and call it me is not only an aberration of the mind, but it appears to be foolish because one doesn't have a great deal of um, great deal of um, happiness from it. One has an occasional happiness from the body, but one doesn't have a, a constant one. In fact, if one sits in meditation and first one isn't so used to sitting like that, then uh, the body plays terrible tricks. One can't sit this way and one can't sit that way and it does and it hurts here and it hurts there. And uh, it has all sorts of problems all the time which we have to deal with. So the Buddha is trying to show that not only that it isn't ours, that there's nobody there owning it, but also that it is exactly the same as every form which exists in the world. All has earth and water in it. Earth solid, water binding, or also growth element. Water is also the growth, it's the sap that's rising. And if there's too much water, there is too much extension. And if there's too little, there's shrinkage. So it has that also. There are occasions when the water element can be disturbed, floods. It carries away villages, towns, cities, and countries. There's an occasion when the waters in the great ocean sink down a hundred leagues, two hundred, seven hundred. There are occasions when the water in the great ocean stands seven palm trees deep, six palm trees, two palm trees, only one palm tree deep. Well, floods and droughts, huh? Very popular in Australia, both. There is no occasion when the waters in the great ocean stand seven fathoms deep, sometimes only one fathom. There are occasions when the waters in the great ocean only stand knee-deep or ankle-deep. Sometimes the waters in the great oceans are not enough to wet even the joint of a finger. Even this external water element, great as it is, is describable as impermanent, subject to destruction, subject to disappearance, subject to change. So what of this body, which is clung to by craving and lasts but a while? 
there can be no considering that as I or mine or I am. The Buddha again shows that the water element, which is um, all over the, uh, uh, our globe, and there's far more water than land on this globe, that that too is subject to change and also subject to disappearance. And we can see that even on the map of Australia, there are lakes mentioned on the map of Australia, non-existent. They only exist when there is a, a flood, and then the lakes come, and then they go away again in the inland. So um, these, uh, the water element outside of ourselves, which is much greater than what we've got inside of ourselves, is subject to destruction and subject to disappearance. So this, if we can see that, so how can we not see it that this within ourselves is certainly not of any, not only of any significance, but that it has a personality attached to it. We think there's a personality attached to it. This got blocked up again, I've got to go back. So then having seen this element as it actually is, if others should scold, curse and threaten the person, he understands thus, the painful feeling born of ear contact has arisen in me. That is dependent, not independent. Dependent on what? Dependent on contact. Then, one sees that contact is impermanent, feeling, perception and mental formations and consciousness are impermanent. And the mind which has already made an element constituent of the form aggregate, its objective support, enters into that new objective support now contemplated and acquires confidence, steadiness and decision. So again, the same as this year's element, the water element is um, treated in that way that if then the ear contact should hear curses and threatening and uh, abuses and um, dislike or whatever one can hear, then one knows that there's nothing happened except the impermanent contact of the sense consciousness which is followed by the impermanent unpleasant feeling followed by the impermanent perception which says abuse or dislike which is followed by the impermanent mental formation and so the mind which has already made an element constituting of a form aggregate, the, the water element in this case, an objective support, a support system for equanimity. We need support systems for good practice. So here we are using the elements as a support system. So we have made here in this case a water element, a support system. So then one has also a new objective support which we can now contemplate, namely the fact that the five aggregates of which the ear contact is one of the sense consciousnesses is also impermanent and therefore we acquire confidence, steadiness and decision. So what do we do? We hear somebody yelling at us or being very unpleasant. I think P 
people, there are hardly any people in the world that don't have that occasion to have unpleasantness in other people directed towards them. So the first thing we can think of that this body which is um, having the senses, the body has the senses, is made up of elements, our own body. Of course the other person's body is the same element. So there's maybe earth element and water element sitting in front of us and we are also earth and water element and so these two are sitting there. So then we have, we hear something, so that ear contact. And with that uh, ear contact comes the hearing consciousness and the hearing consciousness then is followed by feeling from feeling the perception and then the mental formation, the reaction. And we know that all that is totally impermanent and not owned by us. It just is. Now if we do that over and over again, eventually we'll believe it. Just as we have been doing it over and over again, believing that this is me. And eventually we believed it. But if we do that over and over again, the other way around, we'll believe it too. And as we believe it, we'll feel it. And as we feel it, we'll be able to let go, really let go, in a meditative situation of the self. But first we've got to believe it. And when we believe it, then we make up our determination. We can let go of it. What we don't believe, we can't do. Why should we? Anything, even the smallest thing. If I don't believe I can ride a bike, I'm sure I won't be able to. But if I believe I can do it, I'll get up and try. So here is the same thing. If we, if we look at ourselves as this body as made up of these elements, and there, of course there are some more to come, earth and water is only the two that we've had so far. But that's enough. I mean, you know, you sit there and you think, oh yes, earth, solid, water, the saliva that comes from, from talking, it's already enough. And then, we're hearing something, and one hears it, and one knows it's nothing but the sense consciousness, which has arisen through the ear contact, the sense consciousness, and then knowing that there's an unpleasant feeling, and with that we say, the, the mind says, huh, don't like that. So, uh, first it says, um, nonsense, and then the mind says, I don't like that. And we know the whole thing is completely uh, impermanent and irrelevant because there's nobody there saying it and there's nobody there hearing it. Totally irrelevant, the whole thing. It's just only the Kandas operating. Then equanimity has to arise. And this equanimity is not that when that we become disinterested. Not at all. This is a, also very often a mistaken view. The one isn't interested. I would I would say that a person who has equanimity would not be constantly rushing about trying to find something new. But one certainly isn't disinterested in what's going on with other people or with oneself. But one has an attitude towards this of an objective observer. 
And this objective observer sees all these things happening and looks at it and says, well, can't see that. And that's about the best reaction one can have to it. And none of that really touches upon any inner core because the inner core is equanimity. The inner core can no longer be touched. That comes from practicing again and again and again. And in order to practice, one has to remember. Excuse me. First comes the information which you're getting. And that's all you can get, information, nothing else. You can't get wisdom and you can't get practice. Those two you've got to do yourself. You can get plenty of information, loads of it. Years and years and years of information. Forty-five years of the Buddha's teaching. And with that information has to come the wish to remember. And if one can't remember, to look it up again and again and again. And to see it. And to learn it by heart. And then, having remembered it, to put it into practice. And then checking oneself against it, saying that one didn't work too well. I have to try again. And to try again. And to try again. Until eventually, it's not only second nature, but first nature. It just is. And nothing else is happening. And sometimes if it doesn't happen, there's no blame attached to that. It's not objectionable if it doesn't work. The only thing that's objectionable is if one doesn't try and there's a lot of lip service being paid to practice. A lot of lip service. It's, nobody is unable to let go of anger, hate, dislike. Nobody's unable. But most people don't do it. It's just lip service being paid to the practice. The, the person who has heard these things says, yes, I know it's my anger, my dislike and uh, yes, I should let go of it. If one wants to, one can. It's a very interesting fact that anyone can do what, one, what they want to do. It's the wanting that's lacking. One hasn't got enough willpower behind it. <clears throat> Why? Because the mind feels quite comfortable having, having an unprofitable mind state has all sorts of excuses for it, has the uh, excuses which start with the childhood, with the parents, go on with all the people one doesn't like, all the situations, there are all sorts of excuses for these unprofitable mind states. There is no excuse, none whatsoever. There's only a lack of doing it, that's all. And there's nobody that cannot do it, it doesn't exist. It's just a matter of wanting it, not not wanting it strongly enough. The reason also some people don't do it is the fact that one feels very much alive with having all this hate and anger and dislike and all these things in oneself. At least one is alive. Because before that one was so dull and wasn't doing anything at all. So it's actually preferable to this dullness. That's another reason why people don't do it. So this is the two things, again, as it was before, 
it's the um, element remembering that we're made up of elements in the body and remembering that there are five that there are four mental khandhas and they're totally impermanent next one is the fire element and actually the whole thing is repeated that if one should be attacked with nice systems sticks or if one and one should remember that if one was severed limb from limb with a two-handled saw um, if one had hate that would not one would not follow the Buddha's teaching and one should arouse tireless energy and unremitting mindfulness now that's asking a lot isn't it tireless energy and unremitting mindfulness unremitting mindfulness is meaning all the time the Buddha actually said that if one had unremitting mindfulness one could be enlightened within seven days oh, some of us have been sitting here for already I don't know how many days how many is it now something like seven weeks, hmm? seven weeks. Seven weeks instead of seven days yeah. <laughs> so unremitting mindfulness is uh, hard to come by again that's also not objectionable because it is difficult but not to try that's objectionable not to try to be not to try to become aware of oneself mindfulness means to be aware of oneself and if one doesn't try one is a real nuisance to oneself and others and the one that suffers most is of course oneself because the others can walk away but one cannot walk away from oneself one is stuck absolutely and completely stuck to this one person for the duration and so without mindfulness one has um, if one doesn't practice it one has um, one becomes uh, quite um, difficult one is difficult to live with oneself and others find it too so tireless energy well that's also hard to come by isn't it tireless energy and again this is something that um, one can again and again try have talk to oneself and there the best assistant for tireless energy is dukkha there is nothing better if one has enough dukkha energy arises to do something about it if one doesn't have enough dukkha one very easily falls into a sort of feeling well things are fairly good and you know done enough already or something like that and um, the um, the mind becomes a bit um, self-satisfied and uh, doesn't really try hard enough but if there's plenty of dukkha and that's why we always say dukkha is our best teacher And then the same, the same paragraph again about recollecting Buddha Dhamma Sangha and, um, and knowing that if we don't have equanimity, we ourselves have a loss. Nobody has so much loss except ourselves. I mean, other people are affected by it. They, they don't uh, have a nice time with us if we're not uh, peaceful, but the worst time one has oneself so it is really an important thing to tell to uh, have a 
give oneself a Dhamma talk and not wait for somebody else to do it. So then we come to the fire element. What is the fire element? The fire element can either be in oneself or external. And what is the fire element in oneself? Whatever in oneself belonging to oneself is fire, fury, and clung to. That is to say, that whereby one is warmed, ages. It's the aging element in oneself because it's a destruction, huh? fire's destruction. And is consumed. And that whereby what is eaten, drunk, chewed and tasted gets completely digested or whatever else in oneself belonging to oneself is fire, fury and clung to this is called fire element in oneself well as I told you already fire element is temperature and but it's also that which destroys and therefore it's for the digestion but it's also that which ages everything because it destroys and uh, without the fire element the um, the life support system would not work because the constant change is dependent upon that and not only depend on it that's why how it happens so that in oneself one can feel the temperature very easily one doesn't necessarily feel the digestion but one can very feel, easily feel the, the temperature in oneself I mean one knows very well when one is cold or hot and uh, or just right and uh, it's no very easy to see that that also is happening outside. Now, fire element in oneself, an external fire, fire element, are simply fire element. That should be seen with right understanding as it actually is. It's not mine, it's not I, it's not myself. When one sees it thus with right understanding as it actually is, and becomes dispassionate towards the fire element, and fades out the lust for the fire element out of the mind. So again, when we see ourselves as, as those bits and pieces, and as we see ourselves as the element, the um, this uh, intoxication, and not only the intoxication, but the identification. The uh, identification with the body becomes much less because we can see that it isn't something special. It is just part and parcel of the one creation manifested in form. All of it is manifested in form and there is no difference. And if we feel no difference, we also feel no threat. And feeling no threat means feeling no fear. And feeling no fear means one actually has now an occasion to have ease within. Any person that hasn't gained insight along those lines, it has fear. There is no such thing as not having fear. Now some people <coughs> say fear of the dark, fear of sickness, fear of disability, uh, fear of poverty, fear of losing one's loved ones, fear of this, fear of spiders, fear of uh, uh, car accidents, uh, anything will do. But in reality, it's the fear of annihilation. And 
because of the fact that we think we're something special, separate from all that exists, and so we are afraid that this special is going to be wiped out. Sometimes we're afraid of its physical annihilation, and other times we're afraid of its emotional and emotional annihilation if we're not being supported emotionally. Now this fear can become so strong that it's overriding. And when it's overriding, the emotional state in that person becomes one that is um, very turbulent and thus has great difficulty to meditate. There's a very um, difficult to love oneself then very difficult to become peaceful, very difficult to see clearly because fear is overriding. Emotional states which are overriding take away the clarity of thought. The um, formula is purification of emotions brings clarity of thought. Without the purified emotion there can never be any clarity of thought. The clarity which comes in the thinking process has to be unemotional. The only emotions which have any place and are at all um, welcome are loving kindness, compassion, joy with others and equanimity. So the purification of emotion brings clarity of thinking. Everything else that is emotional, the thought process is totally aberrated, has no value in it because it is only seeing the waves of emotion. So what we need to understand about this um, is that if we can see that we exist in the same way as everything else exists and don't feel separated from it, we have far less fear because neither the elements outside of us nor the dark, nor the spider, which consists of the same elements as we are, nor anything else that we are afraid of, is any different from us. It's all together. It's a unity. And in that unity, why should we be afraid of that which is united? We can only be afraid of that which is separate from us and can therefore attack us. Now, to get rid of fear, or at least uh, diminish it, it's not getting rid of, but at least diminishing the fear, makes it possible to see more clearly, to use the mind in a clearer way. And intelligence has absolutely nothing to do with it. Intelligence is wonderful and can be used greatly, but only without emotions. As soon as the emotions enter, the intelligence disappears. It doesn't have any foundation anymore. It can't sit anywhere. It can't be used. Of course, as soon as the emotions disappear, it can reappear again and can be used again. So, an emotional intelligence doesn't exist. But the uh, fear element is a very strong one. And sometimes we have fear of other people which is the greatest absurdity there is, because what's the other person? The same aggregates, the same great elements, with the same dukkha, there's nothing different. And that kind of um, fear 
can bring about such difficult emotional states that one can't see anything anymore. So it is important to remember the teaching. Now some people hear the teaching and can't use it at all. The Buddha compared us to four different kinds of clay pots. The first clay pot's got huge holes at the bottom. You can pour water in and it runs right through. In other words, you don't hear a thing. It's just, just words. Don't hear a thing. The second one's got cracks. It seeps out the water. One hears a little, but most of it is already lost by the time one gets downstairs. Then there's a kind that's full to the top with water. One's got all one's own opinions. You can't put anything new in. And then, of course, there is a clay pot that doesn't have holes and doesn't have cracks and is empty. Well, that's the ideal one. And then you can pour new water in and that can be used then and retained. So hopefully we are that kind. That's the only kind of clay pot that is of any use to anybody. Neither the cracked one nor the one with the holes nor the one that's full to the top is of use to anyone. Fear has a great chance of becoming greatly diminished when we see that the inside of our, that this body um, constituents are the same constituents that are outside of us. There is an occasion when the external fire element is disturbed. It burns up villages, towns and cities and districts. Well, in Australia, again, we've got a, a perfect uh, uh, example of that, the spontaneous bushfires that we get in Australia. It only goes out when it comes to green grass or to a road or to a rock or to water or a fair open space for want of fuel. There is an occasion when they seek to make a fire even with claws, claws and hide pairings. In other words, sometimes one wants to make a fire, the Buddha says, with claws and hide pairings, apparently that burns well and can't get it going. For even this external fire element, great as it is, is describable as impermanent, as subject to destruction, as subject to disappearance, as subject to change. So what of this body, which is clung to by craving and lasts but a while? There can be no considering that as I, or mine, or am. So again, he's comparing this to the fire element, which um, in this country particularly we can see it's extremely destructive, gets out of hand, is uh, uh, completely impermanent and uh, arises spontaneously, doesn't have to be set, the fire arises out of the heat, out of the temperature in the air, just as we have temperature. And uh, at other times, one might, would, might like to make a fire, but everything is sopping wet and one can't get a fire going. So one has these um, understandings that everything that exists, tree or grass, earth or air, water or person, all have a temperature to them. All have a solid feeling to them, which is the earth element and all have the water element in them. Everything is sticking together, which is the water element. 
and all that which is living has a sap in them which is the water element so we see that all that as far as body is concerned is no different from us same goes for house same goes for everything this has another effect not only does it diminish fear it uh, and diminishes our feeling of being separated makes it possible for us to feel embedded makes it possible for us to feel together but it also reduces the vow what in heaven's name do we want? a house which consists of the elements? I mean who needs a house consisting of the elements? we already have a house this one here consisting of the elements does one want things? they are all consisting of the same elements and all of them are impermanent all of them bring with them problems because the elements are not only impermanent but they are also destructive and they are also um, aging and decaying and so if it belongs to things they have to be renewed and repaired and looked after so it effectively reduces desire for things and it effectively reduces desire for people one has already enough trouble with the elements in oneself why should one want more elements around one which are making more trouble the ownership of it's not that one doesn't want to be with people it means the ownership of my husband, my wife, my friend, my lover, my uh, child my house, my car, my carpet, my and so on the ownership of it is the, is the thing that creates all the problems. If I own this, it's a great problem. If I don't own it, well, it's just the way it is, isn't it? It has any problems? Well, that's, that's tough, isn't it? It's tough for the body to have problems. If I don't own it, who cares? So the, that desire is greatly reduced also, and the fear is greatly reduced. And again, there comes the same paragraph again, that um, if one is attacked in any way one remembers these things one brings up energy and mindfulness and remembers Buddha Dhamma Sangha we have one more element to go and we'll do that tomorrow this uh, sutta makes the most uh, put the most emphasis on the elements which are the physical aspect of ourselves I don't think it goes to space. But it does it does refer to the to the to the Kandas again also to the aggregates later. But the two are very much um, the the cause and arising for this illusion. Because we don't see the elements in us we only see the outer form and we don't recognize the aggregates in us we only see our reaction and therefore we need to backtrack and analyze and separate the elements and the aggregates and then we'll see ourselves for what we really are 
just a phenomenon, a process, constantly reacting. And this reaction business is very tiring and takes off away the energy from more important things. Now that's enough for tonight. If you like to ask questions, please do so. No, they help it. Well, a loving, a loving emotion, as long as it isn't passion. If it's a loving, if it's passion, it certainly affects the equanimity detrimentally. But love and compassion and joy with others are emotions which are not concerned with the self. They're concerned with giving out to others. And as long as one isn't concerned with self, there's no reason not to have equanimity. The reason one hasn't got equanimity is because one is concerned with self. The more excited one is, the more one is concerned with self. I'm not sure what to... Can you say it again? I haven't quite caught it. To... We have examples of um, people um, being subjected to abuse and... Right. And to, to look upon that as being... Uh, see, see your reactions and look upon it as an impermanent Uh, No, the idea is is to realize that the abuse is impermanent, to realize that the ear contact is impermanent, to realize that the feeling is impermanent which has arisen, to realize that the perception which arises from that which says terrible is also impermanent and therefore not react. Well, what's the second way? Oh, the positive emotions. Yeah. Well, <laughs> no. Uh, the the way to equanimity is insight. There is no other. One way only. But insight arises out of many facets which all have to do with ourselves. Now to realize that the mental mental aggregates of sense consciousness, feeling and perception are impermanent and therefore not react is one way. To understand that the body is only consisting of elements is another way. 
to realize that the body consists of bits and pieces, 32 parts of the body, none of them me, obviously, because, I mean, who wants to be a liver or a kidney or a, a, a digestive tract? So, obviously, there's no me there. Uh, nobody even wants to be, or bile and phlegm. So, so, these are all ways and means of gaining insight, right? The more insight one gains, the more one practices the positive emotion. The emotions are a support system for equanimity, but they certainly aren't the way to gain equanimity. They are, they are one other facet of practice of purification. They're purification practice. There are two ways of purification, mind and heart, and both have to be practiced. And one is to the four supreme efforts of the mental state, and the others are the four supreme emotions which are called the divine abodes, which are loving kindness, compassion, joy with others, and equanimity. They have to be practiced, but equanimity only arises from inside. There's no other way. One can force it, but it doesn't work. And it's very often mistaken. I mean, it looks like something, but it isn't anything. And the person who who is practicing <coughs> the force of enforcing of, of equanimity is usually extremely unhappy. Because one can't force anything. It's got to be real. If I take my glasses off, I can't see you. <laughs> Is that clear, Peter? Okay. All right. Anything else? Thanks to the uh, unremitting mindfulness uh, yes. in order to become enlightened, how about the night? Is a really mindless uh, sleep uh, permitted? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not a matter of being permitted. It's a matter of, of uh, a natural phenomena, isn't it? The Buddha is said to have slept mindfully, and mindful sleep is a very interesting phenomenon, and it usually happens to people under stress only. And of course, you don't want to get under stress in order to do this. So, what happens is, when there's mindful sleep, you lie in bed, and you're just as motionless, or moving with the body a little as you are in a proper sleep, and you know you're sleeping. It's very interesting. And and if one doesn't know that it's mindful sleep, you might think you're awake, but you're not. And trying to fall asleep, which is dreadful, because that makes it a real um, exercise in futility. But having had mindful sleep and accepting it like that, one feels very refreshed even after only two or three hours. At the most four hours. That's all one needs. Because mindful sleep, your mind does not go into this stupor as it does in the deep sleep. It goes into a real stupor. And as it goes into the stupor, you don't know what's going on. And uh, in this stupor, the mind apparently doesn't have uh, a real rest because it needs far more sleep. So mindful sleep is something that people who meditate a great deal eventually learn to do and then sometimes people do it under stress and of course they don't know what they're doing they're trying to fall asleep and then they come up in the morning and say I haven't slept a wink 
it's also possible that happens sometimes. And if they were to talk to someone, they could find out that that's actually what happened. But that's not desirable, of course. So it is something that is a natural progression. So it's nothing to... One could try, but uh, it's um, it doesn't seem to be something that is easily achieved. The way to try is like this. That at the, when you lie in bed, and ready to go to sleep, to become aware of everything the mind does before falling asleep, because it does a lot of things. And then becoming, trying to stay aware of the actual falling asleep. Now that doesn't, of course, won't always, probably won't work at all, because the mind just goes, and it's gone. But sometimes, if the meditation has been good, and if the meditation has been uh, consistent, it's possible. It's a it's a it's a result of um, consistent and good meditation. And it's quite strange. The first time it happens, it's very strange, extremely strange, it's totally different from from ordinary sleep, and yet completely re- uh, refreshing. And if one doesn't know what it is, one once tries to fall asleep all night. <laughs> so, during the mindful sleep, are you aware that your eyes are closed? Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm. Which is like a meditation, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one can try. And the Buddha recommended trying. He recommended that. To know that one is falling asleep and to watch the mind very carefully what it's doing. We recommended that. And even if one only does a little bit of it, it's also very good. So we can give it a go. See what it's like. And next morning when you wake up, you think, where was I? (laughs) But it's very interesting, to say the least especially when one knows what one is doing. An interesting matter. Yes, unremitting mindfulness. Well, I mean, this unremitting mindfulness, this is really when the urgency has been seen. When one has seen how urgent it is. And uh, that one doesn't have any spare time to really do it. But we have it, we have, when we don't have enough dukkha, it doesn't arise. Dukkha is a wonderful teacher. And the teacher can say what you know this and that and again and again, but it doesn't really hit you as when when dukkha comes. Hmm. Marvelous. And we are usually um, quite um, upset about dukkha. We should be very grateful to it. Always see it and with the right way. It's the it's the um, most effective advance when we act properly with Dukkha. So anything else? Yes, so saying that um, you can really only have true loving kind of compassion and sympathetic joy when you have Equanimity, because that is the real insight. Yes. Equanimity can only arise truly 
well, the perfect one, certainly. The perfect loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy have to come from true insight. But one can certainly practice on the way there, little by little, extending it. It's the same with equanimity. We can only have true equanimity with true insight. And yet we can practice a little at a time. And even if we can't remember the elements and can't remember the khandas, we might remember that everything is impermanent and become a little more equanimous through that. So every step on the way <coughs> is a help. But the perfect way is only through perfect insight, certainly. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that we can't have a little of it. It doesn't um, get us out of the practice, no. We've got to keep on practicing. Yes, certainly. So is there, is there a point of perfection where it's total? Or yes, Arahant, fully enlightened. Yes, it comes by degrees. And it's, um, uh, it's very interesting also because I think everybody probably knows this uh, feeling inside which might, might even be described as a fire element, a sort of um, <coughs> response to things that one gets upset or angry about which is like a fire going inside, you know. It's like a, like a fire fountain. And uh, when there's real equanimity, it just disappears. That sort of thing just doesn't happen. And it's um, little by little, the fire gets gets smaller because one doesn't give it much fuel. And then when you stop giving fuel to that fire, it goes out, goes out. That's all. But it's little by little, and that's very um, helpful because one can check back on it and see is it any better oh yeah it's got better well that's good you know. anything else Vernichtung what is that in Dutch? Vernichtung 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 That's our great uh, fear. And you know, it doesn't show we were not always afraid of death all the time. It's not like that. It's not that everybody thinks I'm going to die, although one should actually. If one does think like that, one had, uh, would have more urgency to practice. But what one is afraid of is that one doesn't get the necessary ego support. And that fear can become so obs- such an obsession that one does the most absurd things because of it. That other people looking and saying, what's the matter with these people? But it's a fear of non, no emotional support, no ego support, and because of that, the... Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments.
Look into your heart and see whether there are any negativities in there. Anything that's not profitable, not skillful, not wholesome. Like fear, or anxiety, or upset, or worry, or discursiveness. or fantasies, or hopes for the future, or memories of the past, or dislikes, or lack of certainty, lack of confidence. Let it all float away like black clouds being dispersed by the wind that's all these are black clouds moods not to be taken seriously there is an inner core a substance of purity let all these impurities float away let them be dispersed See your heart now as a great open space, ready to be filled <clears throat> with love, with compassion, with equanimity. Fill it with those. Equanimity, which is peace, acceptance, understanding of the way things are. Fill your heart with these emotions. Let nothing else interfere. Now let this peacefulness which results from equanimity flow out of your heart like a golden stream and first surround yourself with it. then each person in this room
then further to the trees the rocks let it flow to all of these to the animals in the forest to the people that live near here that the peacefulness that comes from equanimity and the love that comes from purity reach out and flow to all these beings to to nature let's go further people further away covering land and people make the heart strong so that this flow can go further and further watch it extend and enlarge making peace and love coming out of your heart going in all directions to all of creation people, animals, nature the seen and the unseen feel as if you are encompassing the whole of this country within the peace and the love that come from your heart will flow further across the oceans to other countries other people other animals other beings trees nature earth let it be like a stream that touches everywhere with love and peace make your heart so large that it can encompass the whole of the universe 
touch all that exists with love and peace. now think of anyone whom you know who you think would benefit greatly from love and peace fill that person surround that person the peace that comes from accepting as it is and the love that comes from a pure heart Give that person all that your heart contains. Become aware that this is the best we can give to anyone. Now think of those people you're close to. Embrace them with your heart, feeling fully at one with them. Now think of anyone who may be upsetting you. Embrace that person with your heart full of love and peace so that this upset is totally eliminated.
Now put your attention on yourself and feel the expansiveness, the purity and the beauty of your own heart. Feel it, know it, become totally filled with it. Anchor it within you. May all beings have purity of heart. 